hello listeners. Buckle up for a new episode of Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Today is April 14th, 2022. Today's episode is the chapter-by-chapter summary of Charles Hugh Smith's book, Global Crisis, National Renewal. All nations, including the United States, face systemic crises that are reinforcing each other at an explosive point in history. The threats to the Republic are unprecedented, but the status quo is incapable of understanding that conventional responses are an accelerant of fatal synergies. The status quo is now the problem rather than the solution. Let's hear more and dive a little deeper into this book from Charles Hugh Smith in this chapter-by-chapter summary. Part 1. The Global Crisis Section 1. How States Fail All nation-states face the same challenges that together form the global crisis of the title. 1. The increasing scarcity of essential resources has ended the era of ever-expanding consumption that was presumed to be permanent. 2. Elites' excessive share of resources, capital, and power has destabilized the domestic order. The distribution of resources, capital, and agency is the core issue domestically and globally. The tremendous asymmetry of today's inequality ensures collapse if left to fester. 3. The state's structural weaknesses and the limits on its power are neither acknowledged nor understood. 4. Policies that have been solutions for the global expansion since the end of World War II are not just failing, they are accelerating the unraveling. They are no longer solutions. They are the problem. 5. Rather than being the solution to the problems of scarcity and elite dominance, the state is itself a problem that the state cannot recognize, much less resolve. All grand strategies share an implicit belief that existing state structures and leadership can resolve any crisis that arises. The possibility that the system itself is the core problem doesn't occur to those benefiting from the current arrangement. The foundation of this confidence is self-interest. Since the system serves our self-interest, it cannot be the problem. The history of past successes in surmounting crises is another implicit foundation of confidence in the status quo. Since this system met every previous challenge successfully, therefore, it cannot itself be the problem. This implicit confidence in the existing system generates self-reinforcing responses. If existing policies are failing, the solution is to do more of what worked in the past, that is, doing more of what's now failing. This confidence in the system creates a blind spot. Since the system can't be the problem, all evidence that it's failing is rationalized. As existing policies fail, the temptation to substitute magical thinking for real solutions becomes irresistible. In ancient crises, this temptation manifested as religious rituals or paeans to past glories. In the present era, 
magical thinking manifests as technological orthodoxy. A new technology will save us. The elites at the top of the wealth-power pyramid are incapable of separating their own interests from those of the state. Whatever diminishes my wealth cannot possibly be good for the status quo, as my interests and the interests of the state are one. This self-serving unity breaks down in crises that reveal the widening gap between the common interest and the interests of the elite. States that cannot place the nation's interests above those of the elite in crises will fail as the nation crumbles under the weight of its outsized, self-serving elite. This implicit confidence in the system and the supremacy of self-interest hardens the elite's commitment to maintaining the system as is. Why change what's worked well for decades? Why take the risks of changing a system that has served my interests so well? Since previous solutions did not require any elite sacrifice, the elite implicitly believes that solutions that don't require it... Section 2. Why States Fail States can fail for the following basic reasons. Their control of resources and distribution can unravel and the state dissolves, or the state fails to distribute sufficient resources to its populace, or the state distributes resources so unfairly that the populace overthrows the state. In other words, the state's institutions can fail and the state ceases to exist as an organized force, or the citizenry abandon the state due to its failure to provide for them. From the perspective of the citizenry, the state ceases to be the solution and becomes the problem. This failure may result from scarcities that the state cannot overcome, or a distribution so disproportionate that preserving the state is no longer in their interest. In modern terms, the state loses the consent of the governed. Sometimes, the state's distribution is so oppressively unjust that the productive class rises up to overthrow the state's elite and restore a fair distribution of resources and agency. But before this happens, from the perspective of the ruling elite, the state is still successful because their share continues to expand. That their expansion comes at the expense of the commoners being pushed into penury is conveniently ignored. That the state is failing the bottom 90% is dismissed because for the elite, the state is still functioning splendidly. When the state becomes the problem for the commoners rather than the solution, but remains the solution for the ruling elite, then the stage is set for revolt arising from the decay of the citizenry's loyalty to the state. While those within the state continue to see it as the solution, the citizenry views the collapse of the state's oppressively unjust distribution as the solution. This leads to the evaporation of the bonds between rulers and the ruled. In Keats' memorable phrase, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. The state continues to issue proclamations, but they're posted in an empty square, if they're posted at all, for the people have abandoned the state. To reiterate, states fail for three primary reasons. One, a crisis unravels the state's ability to organize a coherent response. Two, due to rising consumption and depleted resources, there are no longer enough resources to meet the needs of both the elites and the commoners. And three, the elite's expanding share of resources leaves too little for the class producing the wealth. In other words, states fail as a result of crisis, scarcity, 
and unfair distribution of resources. The state rose to power by being the solution to scarcity and unfairness and falls when it becomes a force imposing scarcity and unfairness on the majority of its citizenry. But there's also a fourth path to state failure. The economic surplus needed to fund the state contracts to the point that the state can no longer fund its urbanized populace and its own operations. States which arose in era of abundance have no mechanism for reducing its complexity or institutional memory of such a reduction. Unable to reduce its complexity and cost, the state unravels in stair-step stages as institutions unravel, retrench, and then collapse. Let's return to the state's primary function, to gather and distribute resources, capital, and agency. Resources are self-explanatory. An agency, a voice in shared decisions, an economic stake in the system, and the capacity to participate or withdraw, is familiar. However, capital is not as straightforward. Capital includes both tangible assets, money... Another manifestation is the decline of the purchasing power of both labor and currency. The sum of goods and services that can be bought with an hour of labor or a unit of currency has declined for decades. This is called inflation. Each hour of labor and unit of currency buys less than it did the previous year. Few understand that this decline in the purchasing power of currency is the result of a simple dynamic. Increasing the number of currency claims on each unit of energy does not increase the number of units of energy available. In the nonsensical belief structure of modern economics, creating ten times more money will magically conjure up ten times more energy, because supply will always rise to meet demand. If we can't deliver ten times more oil, then human ingenuity will conjure up an equivalent to oil desktop nuclear reactors, algae-based fuels, and so on. What actually happens when you pay an employee who once earned $60 a day $600 a day is not that she can now buy 10 barrels of oil at $60 each, where she could only buy one barrel with her previous wage. What happens is the expansion of claims on that barrel of oil has reduced the value of each claim. The weekly wage still buys the same amount of energy, even though the monetary sum expanded tenfold. This is why the purchasing power of wages has stagnated since the energy cost of energy began rising in the mid-1970s. Improvements in productivity have generated modest gains, but these have been offset by the financial exploitation of monopolies and cartels, which have in effect harvested the gains in productivity from wage earners. The Rand Corporation recently quantified this transfer of wealth. Between 1975 and 2018, $50 trillion has been siphoned from labor by capital, the majority of which is owned by the elite. These two factors, the decay of net energy and the purchasing power of wages, are key elements in the asymmetric distribution of resources, capital, an agency that threatened to unravel American society and the state. For the past two decades, the solution to this decay has been to substitute debt for earnings. If wage earners can no longer afford to buy goods and services, then the solution is for them to borrow the money needed to do so. 
As noted earlier in the section on credit, the problem with using credit for consumption is that the borrower ends up paying twice, once at the point of purchase and again over time as the interest payments accrue. This double payment reduces the earnings left to buy more goods and services. The solution that has been embraced by America's financial leadership is to lower the cost of credit so consumers can continue to borrow more money for the same monthly payment. There's another problem with substituting borrowed money for earnings. On the face of it, future income will be used to pay interest and principal, but all future income is nothing more than a claim on future energy. In other words, all debt service is ultimately funded by future energy, because without energy, money has no value. Imagine being airdropped into the Sahara Desert with a backpack of $100 bills. You're wealthy in terms of money, but if there's no water, food, and transport to buy with your money, you'll die. You'll die rich in money, but poor in the resources you needed to live. If money can't buy essential resources... It's worth Section 3. The Failure of Markets The two global systems that distribute resources, capital, and agency, government and the marketplace, are no longer solutions. They are accelerants of collapse. Both face the insurmountable fatal synergies of elite dominance, serving the interests of the few at the expense of the many, intrinsic flaws, not measuring what's important, and the systemic fragility generated by financialization, the dominance of credit, of the global economy. In Sections 1 and 2, we looked at how and why governments fail. In Section 3, we'll look at how markets fail. Section 3 is an overview of the structural threats to the global system that are poorly understood or ignored, and the obsolescence of belief structures that guide current policies. These threats are systemic and not fixable with conventional policies. Modest policy adjustments won't upend the global obsession with growth or reverse demographics or resource depletion. The economic system that is supposedly an efficient distribution mechanism, the marketplace, has failed so profoundly, few even grasp the magnitude of the failure. As noted earlier, the foundational belief of the status quo is that economic expansion, growth, is essential to maintaining prosperity and social or political stability. In this belief system, the economy is binary. The only alternative to growth is depression, and since we don't want depression, we must have growth, regardless of the costs. Since waste equals growth, let's waste more. The cost of growth is environmental degradation on an unprecedented scale the depletion of irreplaceable resources on an unprecedented scale, and extremes of financial manipulation that have left the economy increasingly vulnerable to collapse. What conventional strategists ignore is that our spectacular economic growth depends on our exploitation of energy-dense transportable fuels, hydrocarbons, and a demographic of, until recently, of ever-larger workforces. Not only would each generation be larger, each individual in that generation would have more energy to consume per capita than individuals in previous generations, until recently, thanks to ever greater quantities of hydrocarbons coming online. More workers and consumers, more energy to consume, 
more demand for goods and services, more income and credit, and more tax revenues and military recruits for the state, which expanded right along with the economy. The 75 years since the end of World War II were ideal for growth that seemed on a permanent trajectory higher. Energy and demographics have shifted from tailwinds to headwinds. The demographic evidence assembled by analyst Chris Hamilton and others is undeniable. The workforce is no longer expanding. Employment is stagnating. The number of females of childbearing age has flatlined. Birth rates have collapsed. The rate of new household formation has fallen dramatically, all while the number of dependents on state social benefits programs, retirees and those permanently out of the workforce, is skyrocketing. As noted in the earlier chapter on energy, oil production has leveled off despite massive investments, and the amount of energy available per capita at prices the bottom 90% of households can afford is steadily declining as the cheap-to-extract hydrocarbons have been depleted, leaving only the reserves that are far more costly to extract. Carbon Credits, an example of financial abstraction. The much-touted market for carbon credits is a prime example of how the real purpose of markets is to enable new, low-risk profit streams for financial elites who have the means to manipulate markets. The idea of carbon credits is that those consuming hydrocarbons can offset the carbon they're adding to the biosphere by trading credits with companies planting trees, which will eventually absorb the carbon that was added to the biosphere. But how does this new market for carbon credits, the perfection of a financial abstraction, actually reduce consumption? The answer is that it doesn't. Nobody keeps track of how many trees are still alive five years hence, or monitor how much carbon was actually sequestered. The market doesn't care if carbon credits actually reduce global CO2, and there is no incentive to include this long-term data in carbon credits traded on today's market. The profit flows not from actually reducing global CO2. Profits flow from arbitraging the financial abstractions based on the commoditization of carbon credits. Even more insidiously, Trading carbon credits gives consumers an excuse to keep burning vast quantities of hydrocarbons while profiting from a virtue-signaling but entirely worthless market for financial abstractions based on illusory carbon reduction. The objective of establishing a market for carbon credits was never to reduce carbon in the biosphere. That was merely the appealing screen to mask the true purpose, which was to commoditize an abstraction carbon credits, so these abstractions could be arbitraged, leveraged, and gamed to generate new reliable profits for financial elites. Unfortunately, there is no way to reap enormous new profits from reducing hydrocarbon consumption. Capital, thus, has no interest in actually reducing consumption. Its interest is in fabricating markets of financial abstractions based on the illusion of reducing the negative consequences of consumption. Market solutions that require commoditization and layers of financial abstractions while doing absolutely nothing to address the real problem are self-serving illusions. Can markets be part of larger-scale solutions? Yes, but only if they are true markets, as defined above, which have been stripped of commoditization, unequal access to credit, and the dominance of elite-controlled financial abstractions built on top of actual labor, goods, and services.
the tyranny of price. The orthodoxy of markets being the solution to all problems rests on the belief that price reflects everything participants need to know, the cost of production, the demand for the products and services, the supply of those goods and services, and the value they add to the purchaser. In other words, the assumption that price is the arbiter of every transaction in every market, and that's why markets can solve problems, everything is distilled down to price. But, as explained above, price does not and cannot reflect external costs, such as environmental degradation, nor does it reflect exploitation, child labor, etc., the power of monopolies to profit from artificial scarcities, the loss of future value of what's been extracted for quick profits today, cutting down rainforests, etc., or currency arbitrage, using a strong currency to undermine a weaker currency, and then using the resulting financial crisis to buy up assets on the cheap, etc., in other words, price, as calculated by production costs and supply or demand, in this moment, only calculates... Section 4. The Nation-State's Structural Weaknesses. Introduction. The nation-state, hereafter referred to simply as the state, is not an inherently stable structure, for all states are political hierarchies attempting to balance the demands of self-interested elites and the need to provide solutions to problems arising in national security, the common good, and the state itself. This conflict can never be fully resolved, since, by concentrating wealth and power, the state becomes an irresistible magnet for wealthy elites seeking to bend the state's power to serve their own interests ahead of the common good. Four Main Sources of Instability This concentration of wealth and power is the primary source of systemic instability because holding monopolies on taxation and force invites overreach to serve insiders' self-enrichment and suppression of troublesome dissent. And, from the elite's perspective, all dissent is troublesome. The corrective mechanisms to restrain overreach are structurally weak and prone to being broken by concentrations of private wealth and power. This is precisely what has happened in the United States, where the state can no longer pursue any real solutions because they negatively impact the elites that dominate the economy and state. This weakness of corrective mechanisms is a second source of systemic instability. Such a structure generates elites jostling to channel state power to serve their own interests and suppress threats to their power posed by the forces of dynamic stability, transparency, dissent, diversity, competition, and accountability. This provides the third systemic source of instability in every state. Self-serving elites can only protect their power by suppressing all the forces that generate systemic stability. The dominance of elite-owned cartels generates a fourth source of systemic instability. As noted earlier in the list of systemic principles, if one node controls the system, in our case, any cartel can veto reforms that diminish its power. The system cannot serve the shared interests of all participants, and, since problems cannot be solved unless they serve the shared interests of all, systems controlled by one node are unstable and prone to failure. Additional Weaknesses The four sources of instability listed above 
do not exhaust the list of the state's structural weaknesses. The state must not only solve the problems of managing resources, it must also overcome a host of other systemic weaknesses inherent to centralized states. The first is scale. The larger the scale, the greater the potential for dysfunction and for leaders to overlook the dysfunction. There are two inherent weaknesses here. One, scale itself masks dysfunction, and two, it also offers insiders opportunities to hide their own dysfunction. Consider the visibility-invisibility of dysfunction in a vast military of millions of personnel versus a platoon of 25 soldiers. The granular scale and immediate consequences of dysfunction in the platoon make it impossible to hide failure for long and the risks generated by dysfunction will be revealed all too soon in combat. In contrast, systemic dysfunction can be indiscernible in the sprawling military until crisis reveals the consequences in a catastrophic defeat. Scale generates two other structural weaknesses, overcomplexity and a reliance on process rather than on... Part 2. National Renewal Section 5. A Revolutionary Grand Strategy The Strategy in a Nutshell The central themes of this book are, one, grand strategy is ultimately the pursuit of security in its broadest measure, and two, the greatest threat to American security is the unraveling of the domestic order as the world enters an era of scarcity. The Situation As we've seen, viewed as a system, the only possible output of our existing system is the extreme concentration of wealth, which converts into extreme concentration of political power. This concentration of wealth and power has fatally corrupted democracy and the state's corrective mechanisms and neutered the systemic sources of dynamic stability, transparency, competition, accountability, feedback, variability, and dissent. If the existing system is not replaced with new structures that restore adaptability, citizen agency, and limit the concentration of wealth and power, the nation will continue to unravel, a process that ends in dissolution. Since the state and social ontology co-evolve, reformation can only unfold if the social ontology's values and narratives shift such that extreme concentrations of wealth and power are no longer acceptable. If the nation's social ontology cannot make this shift, dissolution is the only possible endpoint. Conventional reforms cannot fix fatal synergies. The entire system of money creation, economic incentives, and centralized power must make an evolutionary leap that requires revolutionary shifts in our national identity and purpose. The end of the era of low-cost abundance of resources also demands a completely new structure of values and incentives that replace our current waste-is-growth economy with productive efficiency. Decades of abundance and the expansion of counterfeit currency have masked the damage wrought by intensifying concentration of wealth and power, and so those benefiting from the current arrangement believe the status quo is permanent. Their confidence is tragically misplaced, for the shift from abundance to scarcity upends the expansion of debt and waste is growth consumption, without which the system implodes. Confident in their power, the technocrat class has persuaded themselves that the crisis is short-term 
and can be resolved with conventional measures. The past century of rapidly increasing energy consumption has lulled technocrats into a false confidence that markets will automatically resolve the scarcity crisis if given time. So, expedient policies that kick the can down the road are all that's needed. This confidence in existing policies could not be more misplaced. Systemic crises are only exacerbated by doing more of what's failed. The confidence that the crisis will be short-lived is equally disastrous because the crisis has been building for decades, and once crystallized, it will topple every domino in every chain of dependency, outrunning all status quo responses. The confidence in American exceptionalism is another manifestation of magical thinking. Continuation of the American nation-state is not preordained. If the state and social ontology fail to co-evolve new systemic solutions, dissolution of the nation-state may well prove to be the only viable solution. The unavoidable solution is scarcity-beset, tightly-bound systems made inflexible by elite intransigence and magical thinking is collapse. This collapse of the system may be so challenging elite dominance. Let's start with the systemic crisis of wealth, power, inequality, and the resulting dominance of the elites. Consider how a pendulum lifted to an extreme will swing to the opposite extreme, minus a small reduction from friction. In the same fashion, extremes of unfairness and inequality will tend to generate extremes on the opposite end of the spectrum. If the few gained excessive wealth and power at the expense of the many, the many will rise up to restore balance, but only after reaching an extreme of redress that may well include the unleashing of built-up destructive forces. The French Revolution is one example of this dynamic, with the caveat that such pendulum swings are guided by the nation's specific history and crisis. In the U.S., Extremes of inequality and worker exploitation in the Gilded Age generated a corrective state response of antitrust and workplace regulations. When the fatal synergies of the 1920s speculative frenzy delivered the general impoverishment of the Great Depression, state programs were launched to ameliorate the loss of jobs and income. Now, our present inequality is even more extreme than during the previous cycles, and the state enthralled to the elite, cannot correct the fatal synergies running to failure. This combination of extreme inequality and neutered corrective mechanisms is new in the American experience. Given that this inequality is intrinsically anti-democratic and toxic to open markets, it's counter to the nation's core shared values. In a composite state like the U.S. that is bound by shared populist values, and anti-authoritarianism rather than an ethnic or religious identity. The natural target is the elite and the technocrat class that claimed their managerial magic would benefit all rather than the few. Though these values could support a national consensus to break up the concentration of wealth or power, this consensus is not guaranteed, as there are disintegrative dynamics in play. One is the multitude of fault lines arising from the many ethnic, religious, class, cultural, and geographical divisions present in any vast composite state. The natural divisions described previously by the social ontology struggles to process profound economic shifts is also disintegrative. 
Historian Peter Turchin has assembled data that traces a roughly 50-year cycle of integrative forces, i.e. reasons to cooperate, and disintegrative forces, reasons not to cooperate. Turchin predicted the disintegrative cycle would begin in earnest by 2020, and events have unfolded per his projection. Other historians, such as David Hackett Fisher, have collected data that tracks the parallel rise of scarcity-driven inflation, inequality, and stagnant wages and social disorder, a cycle that also fits present-day economic and social observations. In other words, disintegrative forces are not limited to extremes of inequality and scarcity, though these have been key drivers in previous cycles of rising disorder. In addition to these forces, elites have successfully disrupted anti-elitist populist movements with divide-and-conquer techniques. While elites in nations with a dominant ethnic or religious group have successfully projected responsibility for a crisis onto a scapegoated minority, complex composite states, like the U.S., offer little leverage for this strategy, since one of the core archetypes of composite states is top. That's it for this week's episode of Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? You can learn more about Charles Hugh Smith at his website, oftwominds.com. And follow us on your favorite podcast app, on Facebook, or on YouTube, so that you don't miss our next episode. I'm Russell, and we'll see you in three or four days. <laughs>